Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Welcome, listeners. Today, we're going to be discussing ecstatic trance and ecstatic trance postures. And I'm lucky today to have Laura Lee and we will have Paul Robert. They're directors of the Cuyamungue Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Laura Lee and Paul write books, articles, newsletters, and present this work. Venues have included interviews and lectures for the general public and for university classrooms, on-site workshops around the world, a collaborative modern art exhibition showcasing the Institute at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, and Zoom webinars. They studied with Dr. Felicitas Goodman, an anthropologist who we'll hear more about, for 10 years before her passing in 2005. They've taught since 2000 and have guided and administered the Institute since 2011 with expertise born of media careers. Laura Lee hosted The Laura Lee Show on nationally syndicated radio, while Paul ran a media company producing and publishing books and videos. So we'll meet Paul in part two, but for part one, welcome, Laura Lee. It's so nice to have you with us. Oh, Bob, it's great to be here. So we have a lot to talk about. Indeed. So, <laughs> so let's start with just, if you could clear up for us, what do we mean by ecstatic trance and ecstatic trance postures? Ecstatic trance is well known throughout the ages. It is that state of mind in which you are stepping outside your ordinary reality and often into a state of oceanic oneness. And we live in such a kind universe that it has given us many, many avenues to achieve those states. Ecstatic Trance with Postures is the work of Dr. Felicitas Goodman, the anthropologist who founded the Cuyamungay Institute, who we studied with. And what she did was look at ecstatic trance, one of many types of trance, and she declared two things. She said, mystical states are for everyone, not just the mystics, because she found that these states are based on a physiological shift and that within all of us, we have the capacity to, given the right cues and a ritual, will deliver the cues among other things, but uh, given the right cues, the body will just naturally move into this state. The fact that we can enter into trance states like this spontaneously, haven't we all had some spontaneous mystical experiences? And even those deep, deep daydreams where the outer world just seems to fade away and we are inwardly focused with a whole, it can almost be like a movie reel going on. We are transported into that inward state. These demonstrate how easily and naturally and how our body, brain, mind, soul want to enter into these states. And so she declared, hey, they're for everybody. We all have that capacity and that our ancient ancestors found ways, again, this ritual that she's revived. And to it, she said, 
hey, if we sit or stand in these simple postures that are depicted in really ancient and early indigenous artwork the world over, it tends to focus and deepen the trance. And that's what ecstatic trance postures is. And that is her revival of an ancient wisdom tradition. Wow. What a, an amazing story. Um, so what I thought we might do for, during this session is to focus on her work. Uh, so first of all, how did you personally get to be involved with this? I was hosting a radio talk show where we covered all sorts of leading edge. Uh, this was a weekend show, so I didn't have to pull from the day's headlines. So, um, and I had a program director that had been looking for the roots of King Arthur on his time off. So he totally got me when I showed up and said, you know, I think radio needs this kind of thing. This is what everybody's talking about. It's not on radio. This is back in 1990. And he said, well, here, here, go ahead. And so it was hugely popular and we had just everything uh, on there that was exploratory and leading edge. The mission was, who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is this universe all about? And uh, one of those guests, when I was looking for who are my indigenous ancestors, we were talking about wisdom traditions that you could trace back 5,000 years, not in Western history. Ours had been cut off at the knees through the vagaries of history. So I was asking, well, where's my indigenous ancestors? Where's my tradition to go back and to be earth-based and to see that the world is sacred? And I know it was there. Where do I find it? And somebody said, you would need to talk to Felicitas Goodman. She is doing work that she calls psychological archaeology. And I was so intrigued, called her up, and we had this rollicking uh, interview with her. And um, basically, she said, well, my dear, yes, I have, I have found an avenue for you to go back and really commune with your, your indigenous ancestors in really uh, direct ways. And part of that is looking at the artwork that they left behind. We can trace it back 40,000 years. There's cave art. There's uh, portable art. There are figurines that they left us. Those are its legacy. And I've decoded that as ritual instructions and uh, combine this with, and I'm like, sign me up. So the next opportunity, Paul and I went off to her workshop in Santa Fe. And I, I just have to say, life-changing, life-changing work. I was so intrigued and indeed it works. Indeed, here was an avenue. I had found my spiritual home and um, had to leave radio after so many years because the Institute uh, needed some, some help. And like Buckminster Fuller would say, uh, do the work that you and you alone can do. Nobody was, nobody was there for this Institute. And so we felt like, well, that was a mission um, that we, that we had to undertake. And it was a chance to dive so deep, um, so deep into this work, which is endlessly fascinating and endlessly revealing um, and quite the journey. So we're gonna, we're gonna kind of pull that story apart in part two, because we have a lot to talk about in terms of the work that you and Paul are engaged in today. Um, I wanna dig way back into the past and talk a little bit about Dr. Goodman and about how she came upon all of this um, and then kind of let that guide our way through this work and how, how it developed as a body of techniques. So take us all the way back to Dr. Goodman as an anthropologist. 
And her and the origin story of this work, indeed. Yeah. So here she was, a linguist. She spoke and wrote eight languages. She was working as a medical translator. And she was drawn uh, herself, having had mystical experiences. What is the origin of this? Where do I find this? I can't find it in the current religion. And so um, as an anthropologist, when she went back to school late, late in her life, she had the... Um, great fortune to study with uh, a well-known cultural anthropologist, Dr. Erica Bourguignon, who said, oh, I am studying possession trances where people don't remember, are not fully awake during a trance state. Edgar Casey was, this was a possession trance. He would fall asleep and be in touch with um, uh, guides and not remember when he woke up. That's possession. And, uh, and she was researching this and also um, speaking in tongues, glossolalia. So she gave uh, Goodman some glossolalia tapes and she said, you're a linguist, what do you think's going on here? And Goodman decided after listening to glossolalia tapes with many languages, many religions, that there, there wasn't a uniting belief system, not one uniting language or, or religion, that she found the connective tissue being a trance state, that she felt people were naturally falling into a trance state. And they were producing a certain cadence in glossolalia. And she said, it must be that this trance state is temporarily overtaking the speech centers. And so people are falling into this um, common cadence and, and speech. She went to the Yucatan. She found a church where this was a common practice. And she was uh, allowed to sit in back with a tape recorder, and she would sit and listen until she heard it live, which she found was really authentic glossolalia, and this confirmed her theory. She was one of the first to present this. Hey, it's a physiological trance state that produces this phenomenon. That is now the accepted view. And so she started to look at trance states. She was talking about this research and more. Um, Erica also did a 1960 study with the National Institute of Mental Health, where they looked at 488 ethnographies from all over the world, indigenous societies, asking, well, when these people talk about hearing, um, hearing voices, seeing visions, is it pathology or is it the healing state that they themselves declare it is? And that study was groundbreaking in the 60s. 95% of those societies, they determined, yes, it was healing. It was a bond to that society. It was institutionalized, meaning it was a deemed sacred ground. And uh, it really put and opened the door for Western society to go, let's take this seriously. Let's, let's put this on the realm of um, this is something to investigate with, with honor and reverence and not just call it a disease like we were so want to do anything outside our purview. Um, back in that day. So Goodman was part of this, given her many languages, she was asked to help translate. Along the way, she looked at, well, what do these societies all have in common? And so she put together a list of, oh, sacred space, let's call the spirits to activate the trance state in the work, um, let's expect good things to happen, let's have some sonic driving, which is a very fast monotone beat that we use today. And um, and uh, let's see what happens. She tried this with her students. By this time, she was had her degree and was teaching at Denison University in Ohio. And her students 
of the 70s said, Dr. Goodman, you're talking about this research. You're saying that we can enter into these states without drugs? Sign us up. So she had a ready set of volunteers. She wasn't exactly happy with the results. So she would go through this really well-known ritual, right? Um, set aside a sacred space, honor your instruments, um, prepare with some smudge and have the sonic driving. And she felt like, well, it wasn't exactly all that I had expected. So she put it aside. And then uh, Erica showed her the paper of V.F. Emerson, a Canadian psychologist, and he was looking at yoga postures. And he was saying, even just sitting in a yoga posture for five minutes would produce some simple um, physiological shifts, galvanic skin response, breath rate, um, motility of the intestines, I remember. I'm like, how do you even measure that? Um, and some other things. And she, the light bulb went off and she said, oh, really? Okay. Well, I have seen not yoga postures, but very specific postures depicted in the ancient artwork of these indigenous societies. She loved to go way, way back to the hunter-gatherers. She felt like, let's look at them first and see what they were about. And so she pulled down her many art books, started leafing through them, and started to find postures that are now part of our canon of postures. And the hallmarks for her were, did the artist depict that unmistakable look of the inward gaze um, in the face of these little figures? And why were they standing in these very specific sitting and standing postures with the arms crooked just so, the hands just so? Um, what was that about? So she said, well, if a yoga posture would work, why not this? Um, so she called back her volunteers and said, now I want, I'm going to go through the same ritual with the same sonic driving. She had a summer home in Santa Fe, so she'd been going to the corn dances of the local pueblos that surrounded her home. And she found the beautiful gourd rattles with a beautiful sound. And um, I can demonstrate one for you now. Sure. She said, well, that's a beautiful instrument. And these people are obviously going into some sort of trance state to endure their long, long dances for hours and hours in the hot sun. So that was what she was employing. And she said, no, I'm not going to show you these figures because she didn't want to lead people. She didn't want to suggest that they have a particular type of experience. But she said, now I just want you to sit or stand like this. And she would demonstrate the posture. Well, indeed, they had now... Uh, experiences that were highlighting what she felt would be that particular ecstatic state, indeed touching something outside themselves, something larger than themselves. And one of the first figurines that she'd found um, showed a bear standing behind this figure in this particular, what we call now bear posture. And she felt that the bear was um, indicative of a, the great master healer. He's known that way in all the old folklore and people were having these profound healing experiences. So she said, aha, I, I have found the formula and she was off and running. Now I'm, I'm curious what, how this was all taken by anthropologists and by other um, academicians at the time that all this was happening. Well, she was invited to the laboratories of some uh, neuroscientists 
uh, Johann Kugler at the Polyclinic at the University of Munich in 1983 invited her and several of her students in. And he said, let's hook you up, EEG and some blood tests and uh, heart rate and blood pressure. Let's find out what's happening. And they found that um, no matter the posture, they, they uh, tested a few over several rounds, blood pressure dropped, yet pulse rate rose. That's something unusual that happens. EEG showed beta waking state plus theta, predominantly that state of mystical deep sleep dreaming. And also the EEGs later when, um, oh, and a huge surge of the beta endorphins. Stress hormones, cortisol went up initially, but then dropped very low. But at the same time, there was this huge buildup where the blood was producing beta endorphins, that wonderful feel-good endorphin. And ergo, ecstatic, the ecstatic portion of ecstatic trance, it was very joyful, very um, blissful feelings. Um, that are produced in these trance states, along with, of course, the visionary, and by visionary we mean the full spectrum of, um, like a set of inner senses that flip on um, during this trance state. And then later in 1987, another scientist at the University of Vienna, uh, Giselher Gutmann, hooked her up to some EEGs, and he had a DC uh, model, uh, DC as opposed to AC, where he was measuring the electrical output of the brain. And they found that during peak moments of a trance state, the normal output of the brain was 250 microvolts during a learning task, a focus task. But during the trance states, um, 1,500 to 2,000 microvolts were achieved. So when we um, were asking the uh, neuroscientist that we know, Gerrit Meyer out of Germany, who runs a Dream Sleep Lab, Gert, what do you think is happening? Why? Look at our results. He spent a week with us at the Institute doing this work, in addition to sightseeing. Um, we said, what do you think is happening? And his analysis was, well, Obviously, you're fully awake during this, so you've got beta brain. All the centers that support your waking state are fully on. In addition, and this is highly unusual, he said, some but not all of the centers that support dreaming and sleep are also turned on. I'd call this a waking dream. He said, we know that the brain uses up a tremendous amount of energy. 20% of the body's energy is, is drawn uh, by the brain. That's during waking. We also know that it's during sleep, but now you've got a hybrid state. So no wonder this is a highly active state where both centers are communicating for a short duration. It's an unusual state, but a normal and natural state. And he was surprised that such a simple ritual could jumpstart the body, brain, mind to enter into the state. But he found it perfectly normal. And he said, I can only chalk it up to the wisdom of our ancient ancestors who understood these states and how to achieve them. Um, thankfully, it's been revived. So I guess what we can say then is that, uh, according to Dr. Goodman, that this, this physiological state was a part of our early human experience and that somehow oh. it got lost. Yes. And, and what, what does she describe as the, the cause of that loss? Why, why was there yeah, a break in this? Well, she felt that because everybody with a healthy nervous system can do this, 
that our early ancestors were living in small tribes and that this would be part of their survival mechanism so that if they could tune in to the universe and they believe that it was an intelligent and awake universe, a benevolent universe that was talking with them. And in fact, people today, the world over have these mystical experiences and it does indeed feel like some force, some greater part of us is helping us co-write our story, is communicating with us, that we are in touch with that. That is that if, if you are um, on that spiritual seeking path, that's what it feels like. Well, same with our ancestors. And so if you could tune into the universe at a distance, if you could be awake to its subtleties, if you could be there in harmony with it, um, then this is a richer experience of life. And it also helps you navigate life and, and, uh, keep your keep your tribe together. So she felt then as time progressed and as we entered into big agricultural societies that we then started to stratify and we had roles that were there now in lineages. So we had kingship, we had priests, we had the military, we had farmers, artisans and uh, and various worker bees. And so the priest would say, well, gosh, you can only get to this altered state through us. We're the experts now. And so the road was blocked to the general society. And that that's where <coughs> the road was rather blocked for us. Vagaries of history. So, yeah, so, so agriculture could be seen as what began the type of stratification of society and right. the the change in the power structure so that the yeah. priest becomes the one who administers everything that is considered to be holy. And, and, and it means a control, you know, a society grows and now you've got to kind of control that and things shifted. Yeah. And that change took place at different places and times in human history. Mm -hmm. So what I'm curious about is to know that the the range the variety of places that these that she found these postures good question i can cite one example so the bear posture we see an artifact the first one she found was from a north coast salish cultures but we find the same posture where you're bringing your hands together over your navel and your knuckles are together you find this your arms are out, you're standing, you're sitting, you're kneeling. We find this uh, over a span of 8,000 years and every continent but Antarctica, you can find this same posture depicted. Not only that, uh, she also felt that whether the, the, I say the cultural DNA has been lost, our long history of use has been forgotten, put by the wayside, um, coming forward a little bit, little bit, mythologies, folklore, many remnants of it. But I say the cultural DNA has been lost, but we still have the physiological DNA. And so she declares that even if you lose all knowledge of this, it will still bubble up in various ways. Why? Because it works. Even the work of Amy Cuddy, famously one of the most popular TED Talks in her book, Presence, in her TED Talk, she talks about the Wonder Woman pose, where you've got your arms off to the side, you're holding your waist with your elbows pointed out, and you're standing with your feet apart, rather like our mothers would, you know, lecture us, hey kids, you know, an empowering pose. 
um, Amy Cuddy cites this as being um, actually revving up your confidence. You can measure an increase of testosterone when you simply stand in this posture. So in her book, she cites women. Hey, if you want to go ask that boss for a raise, I advise you to go to the ladies room, stand in the Wonder Woman pose for five minutes, rev up your confidence, your testosterone, give you the strength to march in and tell your boss why you deserve that raise. Well, interestingly, we call this the feathered serpent pose. And we can find this posture throughout Mesoamerica, throughout uh, the Neolithic societies of Europe and uh, elsewhere. So again, our ancient ancestors also knew this posture and its benefit. So one other quick question, did she ever find now? So if you, you look over the world today, most of what we would describe as ancient shamanic societies are gone, but there are still some, particularly in remote regions of the world. And I'm curious to know if she ever encountered any contemporary groups of people who still use these postures in the way that she described? Mm, really good question. So um, we can cite an anthropologist who she was friends with, and he went to Ecuador and worked with the Havaro Indians. And he cited that they would lie down and put their hand, one hand on their forehead, another hand at their side, and they would journey. We call this the South American lower world posture, and we use this with drumming, not a rattle. And it's very effective at sending you on a journey. Mm. Another case would be the woodcut that I think dates to the, I don't know, 1800s. And this was a German traveler. You found it in his um, very famous, very famous woodcut of a Siberian shaman where there is an assistant to the side who's drumming. And this Siberian shaman is laying face down with her head to the side. She's got a drum on her back and she's got her hands um, over her head and her feet crossed at the ankles. And we call this the Sami pose. And so um, this is also a very effective posture. So we have some hints. I think the best hint of all would be that it works for us and that we see the geometric patterns quite often that are the same patterns we see on the cave walls, say, of South America and of the caves of Europe and the, even the Coso Indians uh, rock art. Famously, these are called antoptic, antoptic geometric forms. And when lab studies, when they put people through various altered states, people report seeing these same geometric patterns. <clears throat> we see them too. And so it looks like these are the notes, according to the work of uh, Thomas Dawson and um, David Lewis Williams, famously in the 1980s, they suggested <coughs> these forms are part of the architecture of the eye and the brain and are seen in various altered states. And so when we see these on the cave walls, and fully a third or half of the cave art is these geometric signs, then we could we could confidently say that these are the notes of shamanic spirit journeys. Mm. So you see those forms, you're on a very similar journey as our indigenous ancestors. Fascinating. Beautiful. Well, Laura Lee, I think that's going to take us to the end of our first session together. And we have so much more to discuss in part two. So let me express my thanks 
to you for being here. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure. And thanks everybody for listening. Please tune in for part two. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.